0: Kia ora welcome to New Zealand's Next Top Podcast, the official podcast of the Opportunities Party. You'll hear from our candidates as they share our story and the vision that we have for the future of Aotearoa. We think the political status must go, because we can't keep doing the same things we've been doing for the last four decades and expect a different outcome. That's Einstein's definition of insanity. I'm Dr Naomi Pocock, and today I'm joined by Megan Owen and Alex Corkin to talk to the rural community. Kia ora.
1: Kia ora. Hello.
0: Hello. So, Good evening. I think- Hi. Megan, as we haven't heard from you before, would you like to give a little introduction? To- yeah, my name's
2: everyone. Megan Owen. I've been living rurally now for most of my life. I grew up in Wellington in the city with... Buses every seven minutes out out the door. And I just thought that's what happened everywhere. Went travelling, met a guy, he wanted to go farming. So we've been share milking now for 23 years. And obviously the dairy sector, I've worked for the companies that went on to form Frontera, both NZCDC, New Zealand Dairy Group, Bain Milk Products, and then Frontera, and both production and supply chain roles. I was drawn to top basically because I see the policies as being fair and reasonable. I enjoyed the concept that actually there was something better than just buying votes for three years. I like the fact that the policies haven't changed much over the last six years because they they don't need to when you've got really good policies.
0: I'm happy to be representing Waikato for the Opportunities Party. Well, welcome to the team. We're really pleased to have you. And I know Megan's been a fantastic supporter of me over the last few campaigns that I've run, and I've been really grateful for your support, Megan, over that time. So thank you again for being part of my the wider team. And I oh. also grew up on a Waikato dairy farm. We have something in common there. I was a, my father was a farmer and my mother was a teacher, very grounded in that sense of rural community, and the importance for our policies and our lack of flip-flopping to to provide direction for all New Zealanders and particularly the rural community. Do you want to tell me what your what your favourite part of the top party policy is around for the rural well, community? The thing that the
2: thing that dragged me and hooked me was the concept of a smaller government with UBI and around the agricultural sector, empowering farmers to do what's right. Farmers tend to have a longer term planning cycle than the three years that our politicians have and they think generationally Uh, I think that being able to entrust the farmers to do what's best is really important because the one one stop shop and the silver bullet isn't out there and Mm. in the past lots of people have been throwing policies around assuming that because it works on one particular farm it will work on all farms and everyone will tell you that every hectare is different, even within the same kind of lot on the on a surveying oh. map. I like the idea that there's some they trust us. You've got to trust these people to do oh. what's best. Absolutely have penalties for those that aren't doing well, but also encourage and incentivize those who who are doing great things.
0: Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the, the approach towards empowering communities, and whether you're talking about healthcare, education, rural, empowering communities to solve their problems is something that draws me to top as well. I agree. I don't like this sort of blanket across the board approach of regulation and control. And I think, particularly in r- the rural sector in New Zealand, is so diverse—from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South, from the highest plains to the coastal areas—such diversity in our in our landscape. And yeah, this this blanket environmental rules type approach doesn't work. And I think what the other thing I love about Top is the opportunity to bring the environment to the centre, to have that rational reasoned debate between the parties, working with either side, stopping the flip-flop and showing that way forwards with that long-term thinking is something that that really resonates with me. And I think one of the other things you said there, Megan, was around the nature of farming and it being, it can be quite seasonal, can't it, in the part-time thing and the universal basic income enables or empowers people to work part-time because they don't lose all the benefits that they might be getting from the state when they go to work.
2: Oh, absolutely. We've had people who have come to work on the farm for a day, but if they work for more than a day, they lose their benefit or their allowances or something. And that system is so hard to deal with and it's so bureaucratic that actually they go, oh, no, it's not worth it. The other time when a universal benefit would be amazing is when there's a drought and when the government gives, I think it was, there was an announcement the government gave $15,000 to farmers in Northland. My sister thought that every farmer in Northland was getting $15,000. $15,000 paid for a cup of tea and a biscuit for all those farmers up north. If there was a UBI and everyone got that baseline thing, it would really soften the blow. You think of the people who've been victims of Cyclone Gabriel, that they don't have any income. They have assets. If there was that baseline and you just knew, hey it might not be much, but it's enough and I can plan it, that mm. becomes quite real. And that be that, that just helps everyone. It's not just the rural community. That that is profoundly softens the blow for people If you have to quit work because your kid's got cancer, you shouldn't be penalised because you're not looking for work because you're looking after your kid. Mm. There should be that there's a rule. There is that true net there for everyone. Mm. I also like the fact that the Opportunities Party doesn't encourage exceptions, which just means loopholes. Mm. So the land value tax isn't on productive land. So... Farms aren't necessarily caught up in that. Lifestyle blocks might be. The reality is that because there are no exceptions, there are no loopholes, and because all the policies, we have to increase the tax take, and it's wrong to take it off the guys I employ because I give them a pay rise, and they get less in their hand because they've tripped over the working for families threshold. It's crazy. We I think there's a really better.
1: important insight that you raised before as well that, that ties into that, right? It's to make something financially sustainable for farmers in weather that changes, with animals that change, with legislative environments that change. If you're providing somebody a UBI or some kind of some kind of additional assistance there right you're not just helping the farmers you're helping all the people that rely on those farmers you're you let's take the ubi as an example you're giving that to farmers specifically when you have an issue like that where they're getting that extra assistance you have a drop in in the milk price by say a dollar 1.3 billion dollars wiped off the new zealand economy just like that farmers stop spending and that hurts rural communities So with with that extra assistance, whether it's a UBI or something else, you're giving those rural communities a a second landing pad, right? And every person who that money travels through, they get an additional landing pad. So it just massively softens the blow. And if you can do that in a way that doesn't trip over those benefits, right? it, It becomes even more powerful, even more effective.
2: Yeah. And I think the key thing is that I'm really big on systems. So if you've got that system in place, there's people, after the Christchurch earthquake, after after these environmental floods, there's been no standard system, and so people aren't sure what they're entitled to. They, for a long time, didn't have phones, couldn't even ring up and find out what support they are entitled to. If we have something uh, that's simple, smaller government, the, the de- 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 decision is already made, and I I don't think you can underestimate how much even a little bit coming in after times of crisis can help communities. And you're right, for every dollar that gets spent it goes around three or four times before before it finally finally kicks out.
0: So just for our listeners cuz not everyone is into reading political policy on websites as I have been for the last 6 years, I'll just briefly explain for our listeners So what we're proposing this time around is a $15,000 tax-free threshold. So first $15,000 tax-free for everybody. And that enables us to put the processes and the policies in place behind the scenes to then move towards what what we're currently calling a universal basic income, but it's otherwise been called a Kiwi dividend or – a or a cash credit, or there's various names for it. And we're proposing a uh, $16,500 per annum per adult, that's citizen resident, a permanent resident uh, over the age of 18 until 65, because then the superannuation kicks in, which is actually UBI in itself. So that's around $1,375 a month per adult. And This is what I love about top, right? We don't just throw these policies out there and go, we're going to just chuck all this money out there and see where it lands and hope, cross our fingers. We say this is going to have these impacts and this is how we'll pay for it. We're fiscally responsible and therefore we've costed it. So it's costed through some adjustments in the tax bracket, but also through a land value tax, which is leveraged on at point zero. 0.75% on residential properties. So it excludes commercial, it excludes product farming, uh, and it excludes the land, and because those areas are either under protection or already productive. So we're trying to also then on the other flip side is incentivise the productive use of residential properties which at the moment are being land banked and that's not cool for anyone. So that's the policy. In a nutshell,
2: Excellent. I think one been, of the, yeah, oh, I think fair. one of the key things when I've been talking about um, UBI is the costing, and people are surprised that actually the costing seems fair. There are people who have unproductive land, i.e., they've land banked, or they're sitting on a spare section because they think one day maybe they'll retire to that place, and they're actually open. Those people are actually open to paying more if it means that our nurses and teachers and everyone doesn't have to go every six years fighting tooth and nail for just enough to get through the next thing? Because I think Mm. most people understand the system's broken. Most Mm. people understand that actually a lot of people who are self-employed, as in the farming community, there are many years where you pay your staff more than you get. And those small to medium business owners, have all had years where they've paid staff more than they can get. If you have that UBI sitting in there, then actually that just makes them a little bit more resilient to handle those ups and downs that come with any business holding. I think rural New Zealand is pretty robust. There have been some pretty hard times. We mentioned that $1.3 billion was written off with a dollar decrease in the power, but you forget to that six months earlier than that announcement, there was another dollar. So it's $2.6 mm. $2. billion has gone. And that's money that, again, circulates around in the economy. And I have to be fair, farmers are feeling pretty picked on. There were, there's were, been protests and there's been people getting armed for arms because they don't feel hurt. And that's the hard thing. Everything comes down to oh, farmers and there's this perception of farmers that they're not astute business people, because they are. And I think there's also a perception in the powerful corridors in Wellington that farmers actually don't have the skills. But the only reason you can be a politician, the only reason you can be an artist, the only reason you can be an economist and a banker and a teacher and a nurse is because you've outsourced your hunting and gathering to a farmer. And I like the idea that TOP actually is talking about empowering farmers to do their best because given the right metrics, they will. For a long time, people would slag off farmers but not give us any proof. We've got now got three years worth of, or four years, including last seasons, of greenhouse gas CO2 equivalents for our farm. And Our farm produces about 200 metric tonnes of food a year. We are still about just under half of what one flight from Heathrow to London generates in CO2 equivalents.
1: Maybe that's a good little segue into the Opportunities Party's climate policy. I know that we values perspective. We care about decentralisation. We care about giving people the tools that they need to make good decisions and trust that they'll do that. And obviously we care very deeply about the climate. I'd like to talk a little bit maybe about the, the biodiversity credits that we're talking about because I think they bring all of that thinking together into something quite powerful for the rural sector That that's very quintessential top in terms of our values.
2: Sure. Yeah. Do you want to expand on that?
1: Yes. Yes, I do. So the idea is that essentially farmers obviously know that every hectare is different, right? The rural sector knows their land inside and out. You've played on it probably since you were five years old. You've been on that land for 30, 40, whatever, how many years. You know what's best when you're thinking about what can I do to improve the land, whether that's for productivity purposes, whether that's for climate change purposes or biodiversity purposes. And I was was out visiting a farm just north of Hamilton a few weeks ago, and the farm owner was on there and he said... It, it sounds a bit naff, but we almost don't care about climate change. We really care about biodiversity because all of the things that you have to do for biodiversity are the same things and more than mm. what you need to do for climate change, right? Like if was yeah. just about climate change, I'm going to plant 300 hectares of pine and oh. destroy the local ecosystem, right? <laughs> and I don't want to do that because actually mm. the, it's really important. We care about biodiversity. So mm. I, that's why I like the framing around Um, our policy around biodiversity credits specifically because essentially what we want to do we want to connect people who want to invest money in climate change and biodiversity initiatives with farmers who are looking for funding who have ideas about how they can be better how they can make improvements to their land and be better environmental stewards of that land because again we're thinking generationally right we're thinking about you If you're into the dairy side of it, you're thinking about carving two, three seasons ahead of time, right? That's the default time frame. That's short. So to provide a a marketplace for that, uh, what the Opportunities Party is saying is that farmers get to choose what is best for your land. We will just find you the right people um, to help you achieve that, whether that's financials, whether that's advice, whether that's anything else uh, that a marketplace like that could provide. Mm, Um, At the same time, there's some tuning to the ETS that we want to do. Um, we want to take pine out of the ETS and we want to bring forward electrification of the bus fleet, but that's not so rurally focused. So we can just say electric buses are cool and carry on with our lives for the rural sector part of it.
2: Yeah. The rural people still like to go into city. And the thing is, there's not a lot of public transport. If you live in, Mm. say, Moransville and you want to get to Hamilton, there are services but they're not – people end up taking the car because, oh, it goes to the wrong part of Hamilton or it just becomes too hard. Yeah, Yeah. not at the right time or my kids got sport and all those kind of things. And there are areas that we can improve, and those personally, I own an electric car because that was the quickest way that we could reduce our household footprint. I needed a new car got me a little leaf, did awesome. But not everyone is in that position. Not everyone can make those choices. But if we can have some tools that reduce the fuel that we're using or mm. reduce then increase the number of people who are sitting in the car that's going from mm. Hamilton to Morrinsville and mm. vice versa, those things are all little things we can do. But I think it's the government's, still got to take some responsibility for making those big calls about how we go about keeping farming sustainable as a business. And to be sustainable as a business, we have to look at different things. We have to look at how we're impacting where we're farming and whether this is the right place to do it or whether there's some other way we can do it. I'm thrilled with the no pine thing because – I've driven in the South Waikato when you go past in the Tokoroa e- area, and you can see it just looks like somebody's dropped a nuclear bomb on yeah. on the land. And from a custodial point of view, it's heartbreaking yeah. because yeah. it's that's not sustainable.
0: Yeah. It, it's the lack of value. I feel uh, it's a lack of value in our productive, beautiful, rich soil that has so much potential to grow so many things. It's the same whether you're looking at Pocono or the cities, sp- our cities sprawling, Hamilton, wherever you're looking. And I I guess the other thing I was going to mention is the whole the thing about commuting, and this ties into the livable cities, right, is that, yes, you might have to drive from Orangeville to Hamilton, but then once you hit Hamilton, you've still got to drive all through Hamilton to get to the hockey turf, where if we had better livable cities like they do in Europe, if we had good, solid urban design of cycleways, walkways, public transport, of people living working and playing within a, a smaller radius and just really good transport corridors and ease that congestion and whether you're travelling yeah. from Lawrenceville to Hamilton or Altham to New Plymouth or wherever having livable cities a place where people want to live where they enjoy that sense of community and building up that sense of community so again another sort of more longer term forward thinking multi-generational but also intertwined systematically because it impacts healthcare and impacts so many things kids biking to school safely so many things that it impacts if you just make if you're changing the fundamentals right as rather than arguing about what color to paint the kitchen looking at those cracking foundations and going what's the fundamental challenge here that we need to solve yeah. And what are the best ways to solve that? And I think that's what TOP does well.
2: Yeah. Mm. I
0: I guess the other thing we were going to talk about was bringing it back to the rural sector is land use. So we've touched on it a little bit, but just to delve into that a little bit more around places like the Canterbury Plains and the Deep South being at peak cow or past peak cow, and identifying that and going, okay, again, here's a real challenge. How can we transition away from that? How can we empower that transition for those communities and help them to to main, to regenerate their catchment as a community? So you, you talked about the one farm biodiversity credits, but then it's also looking at the catchment or the region and looking at it from a a broader perspective and bringing communities together with informed informed conversations, discussions to solve the challenges that those communities face. Yeah. Do you want to add I anything that, to
2: that? Um, I, cover it? Oh, I know that some of the changes that are made um, in Northland, there's been a lot of dairy farms that have been converted to avocado, Orchards, I've had the opportunity to talk talk to people from University of California, Davis, and they had a similar situation where people dairy farming had something like 50-year water consents. They weren't in a cooperative model, so they were just price takers and they weren't making much money, so they set up almond farms. And I said, oh, are they processing their own almonds? No, they're not. They're still not in a co-op model. But what they are doing is sucking huge volumes of water from the aquifers and changing lots of stuff. But they're scared, so they're making as much money as they can before they get closed down. I, I fear that we sometimes jump onto things like avocados in Northland, which have a much more seasonal employment thing, and they're just buying them for the water. And mm. so we need to make sure that we're not encouraging diversity and sending the wrong message, like we replace one issue with a, with another issue because yep. there needs to be some really robust conversation around it. And I, I guess it's the same as anyone who's self-employed, is if you see a lot of things farmers see as threats and the reason they sometimes over- over, they back off and won't listen to you, is because it's not that you're threatening their business, it's that you're threatening where their children go to bed at night. You're threatening their home. And that gives a much more primal response, especially if they're not understanding the long-term consequences. I think with TOP, there's an emphasis on conversation and having finding the common ground, and making sure that it's actually not just better for one or two people, that actually it's better for the entire community, and that community can, that goodwill can spread. And there's some amazing water improvements that have happened at the top of the South Island, and it's absolutely been community-driven. I think that model can be, but those models are expensive. And especially now when we've had, $2.6 2.2.6 billion dollars wiped off our incomes. Those things are harder for an individual farmer to fund. So if yeah. there's some incentives around the long-term vision, and I think that's the problem is sometimes it's a real knee-jerk reaction to things, mm. and we end up having even some of the trials that Zed did on farms. They had these mitigation strategies, and some of those actually increased the emissions, because the what is a mitigation strategy on this farm doesn't actually gives you more emissions on another farm. So yeah. without that kind of farm by farm, hectare by hectare modelling, we can make some false things. And I'm scared that sometimes there's the, the a, a blanket rules written, rush through, and everyone goes, yeah, that solves it. And then they walk on. And then the farmers are going, that doesn't work for us or that will work one year and seven. So I, I really hope that when top's at the table talking about such policies that we can bring a bit more longevity and science into the equation.
1: I completely agree. We can't keep doing the things that we've always done. We've got to think about it a little bit differently. We've got to maybe increase our planning, like our planning life cycle. And ultimately we've got to focus on the long-term deep solutions, rather than the the short-term mm. sugar hit that, that we get with a with a three-year parliamentary term right now. So it's all about right. that long-term picture. I mm. like
2: the sugar hit.
1: <laughs> you always have regrets after you eat a whole bag of jelly. Let me tell you,
0: this is so true. <laughs> Do you want to wrap us up, Megan? Yeah, sure. I'd like
2: to thank anyone who's been listening to this because I know it's non-scripted, so sometimes it's a little hard to get our points across eloquently. Um, We're looking forward to um, the Opportunities Party sitting at the table, bringing in a fresh voice that is backed by science and that cares generationally, just as the agricultural and rural sector do, cares generationally about making a difference to New Zealand and to the people of New Zealand, whether they live urban or rurally.
1: For listening to New Zealand's Next Top Podcast. Please subscribe and share it if you know someone who'd be
2: interested. To find out more about TOP, our policies and our candidates, go to
1: www.top.org.nz.